I'm going to get right into the message. Uh, and by the way, it's good to be back. A uh, lot of things I could tell you about. We went on a, a trip down south, but I guess the one thing I want to convey is we really missed you, and uh, we're glad to be back. I always love to be back with our family here. So um, before I left, I had done three messages on spiritual gifts. Um, I believe uh, Dan continued, Kevin kind of continued on the theme of spiritual gifts. And if you were paying close attention, uh, we covered a lot of non-controversial gifts like teaching and administration uh, and encouragement. Um, But there are a handful of gifts today that are highly controversial. And probably the most controversial spiritual gift is the gift of Prophecy. Now, this is interesting that these gifts are controversial because Paul makes it very, very clear that the reason God gives his church gifts is for the building up of the body. Yet, whenever you do a message on these controversial gifts, the controversy can tear down the body. Uh, because it seems, especially with this gift, people have strong passions about whether prophecy exists today or not. And uh, some of you may be familiar, there was a conference that John MacArthur did recently called Strange Fire. And uh, he pointed out just the, the numerous abuses of people today who claim God has spoken to them. Um, And he pointed out some of the heresy that's going on. And uh, it was a conference called Strange Fire, and there's a book called Strange Fire. Well, um, that didn't sit too well with those in the Pentecostal and charismatic wing of uh, Christendom. And they were highly offended. In fact, one Uh, One guy by the name of Michael Brown, MacArthur's book is called Strange Fire. Michael Brown wrote a rebuttal called Authentic Fire, saying don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then Phil Johnson from MacArthur's camp has uh, done a sermon called There's No Baby in the Water. So it goes back and forth, back and forth uh, over this this issue of, uh, of prophecy. Now, Knowing how passionate people can be about this gift uh, in particular, I want you to keep two things in mind this morning. Number one, the ultimate purpose of this series on spiritual gifts is to build up the body, not to tear it down. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Since you're eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. Okay, So there's a good chance. In fact, I guarantee this. Something I say this morning, you're not going to agree with. Okay, So can we covenant together not to let Satan cause division? Can we just say that's not going to happen? Can we say that? Yes. Okay. Good. Then the second thing is um, the ultimate purpose of this series is to have people examine themselves, find their gift, and get plugged in. That's why we have the ministry fair. And I would encourage everybody, please take some time after the service to 
uh, to go through the ministry fair, get to meet the ministry leaders, and, and try to get plugged in. Okay, So here we go. With those, those cautions, what is prophecy? Well, here's a simple definition. Prophecy is receiving and then reporting divine revelation. Okay, It's God giving direct words from him, and then the prophet reports what God said. Okay, that would be a simple definition of prophecy. Now, the two main views out there today uh, are called the cessationist view. Cessation means to cease. The cessationist view and the continuationist view. The cessationist view basically says this. When the last book of the New Testament was completed and the canon of the Bible was closed, that is when God stopped giving prophecies. That is when God ceased giving direct, word-for-word revelation. That is a cessationist view. A continuationist view says, even though the canon of Scripture has been closed and completed for the past 2,000 years, God continues to give revelation today. God gives divine revelation that can be reported today. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you uh, the cessationist argument, then the continuationist argument, and then the right argument. <laughs> okay? So let's, let's first begin with the cessationist argument. In fact, there's two main points here. Point number one would be this. The apostles and prophets... Oh, somebody must have put some... some uh, did somebody put some possessive S's in there? Did you save me on that? Did you... Did it, no? Oh, did I get it right? I actually spelled it right. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't have the gift of spelling, all right? That's why God has given spell checks. Um, the apostles and the prophets' revelation was the foundation upon which the church has been built. Okay, and that's in Ephesians 2. It says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. All that to say you're the church. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The church is built on top of a completed foundation. A foundation, once it's laid, does not continue. You know, if you're building a house... And uh, somebody says, hey, how's your house coming? Well, we haven't finished the foundation. And you ask them 10 years later and 20 years later, how's it coming? We're still working on the foundation. You can't start building the house until the foundation is laid. What this is saying is the apostles and the prophets and the, their revelation is the foundation that needed to be completed, and it was. It was completed by the end of the first century. That is then what the church is being built upon. 
It can't be a continual thing or you could never build the church on it. So the concept of their revelation being the foundation upon which the church is built is a concept that argues for the idea that revelation needed to stop at some point so the foundation could be built. Now, within Scripture itself, we kind of get that idea that uh, it's going to end. As the apostolic age was coming to a close, Paul no longer refers to prophets, but instructs us to hold to Scripture. What do I mean? Well, here are Paul's letters, and here are the dates of when we think he wrote them. So Galatians was, was the earliest in the uh, late 40s. Corinthians, where we get the most information about prophecy, was the early to mid-50s. But as we get into the next decade, into the early to mid-60s, that's when Paul wrote what you call the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus. Here, there's mention of prophets and prophecy, but as Paul is ready to die, in fact, he knows he's going to die in 2 Timothy, as he instructs Timothy about moving the church into the next generation, there's no mention of prophecy, but the emphasis is, Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Stick to Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. You would think he would say, and prophesying, but he, he doesn't. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.13.14, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. So what you heard from me, that's what you, you use as the pattern. With faith and love in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Again, the, the deposit had to be made. The foundation was laid. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Okay? That's the foundation. All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. But it's the Word. So the emphasis is all on guard the deposit, guard the Word. In fact, in Acts chapter Paul uh, is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He knows he's going to go die. And he warns them. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So, so wolves are coming in from the outside. Wolves will rise up from the inside. Now, here's what you do, Timothy, or elders of, of Ephesus. Here's what you do to fight the wolves. Go to the prophets. Listen to the prophets. No. And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So, here's the argument for cessationism. The foundation of the church is built upon the revelation of the apostles. A foundation can only be laid once. It was laid. And as we get toward the end of the apostolic age, even Paul shifts the emphasis from there being continuing divine revelation to now guard the deposit, guard the New Testament and Old Testament deposit that's already been given. Okay, Now, so that would be a, a cessationist 
argument. A continuationist argument would say, that's all very good, but Scripture does not explicitly say that prophecy and divine revelation will cease at the close of the first century. And there are two really main passages. One is Peter on the day of Pentecost. They all go out and they're speaking in tongues and prophesying. And the question is, what is this? What's going on here? And he says, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Apparently he had to wait till ten back then. Okay. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So now he's going to quote from the, the Old Testament prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, what's interesting is he says what's going on right now is being fulfilled in the last days, though, Joel says this will take place. Now, um, a lot of times when we hear the, the term last days, we think, oh, right a few minutes before Jesus returns, that's the last days. Biblically, last days is a technical term that encompasses the entire church age. Okay, So uh, here, at the very beginning of the last days, there's prophecy going on. Now, um, the continuationist argument would say, we're still in the last days. That's when prophecy will continue. Now, a cessationist would probably come back and say, well, this passage says that this will take place in the last days but there's nothing that says it will continue throughout the entire last days. Whether you buy that or not, I don't know, but that's what a, continu- or a, a cessationist would have to say. But this is a key passage for continuationism, that in the last days there will be prophecy. Okay? Then here's a really contentious passage. It's the love passage that's read at every wedding. Okay? Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Okay, so prophecy is going to cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, there used to be an argument that uh, many cessationists used They said, oh, perfection, that's referring to the completion of the canon. You've got the perfect revelation, the canon is closed, therefore prophecy will cease. I don't know that I buy that, because later on, Paul defines what perfection really is. He says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. 
That's got to be referring to when we're actually with the Lord, when we see face to face, when we have full knowledge. Okay? So uh, the argument here is that prophecy, yeah, it's going to cease, but not until the eternal state when we're in the presence of the Lord. A uh, cessationist would probably say, um, yes, in heaven there'll be no need for prophecy. Um, There is clearly a time in the future when it will have ceased. But is this teaching definitively that it must continue that entire time? In other words, they would question whether it must continue until that time. So the debate goes back and forth um, whether revelation has ceased or it continues. Now, let me tell you what I am. I am a... No, I'm not a practical continuation. This is what happens when you go on vacation and you get divine revelation. God told me that... No. Um, I'm actually a practical cessationist, not a practical continuationist. Um, a practical cessationist. All right, what does that mean? I am extremely cautious about people claiming that God gave them word for word direct revelation. Okay? But can I say definitively, absolutely, God has never spoken one word of revelation in the past 2,000 years since the close of the canon. I, I can't prove that. I don't think I can prove that. Okay? But, and here's the qualification, even if he has and even if he does, since Scripture is now our final authority, All claims that God has spoken, even God has led, God has guided, all claims of God communicating must be submitted under the authority of Scripture. That's what I mean uh, by practical cessationism. Even if God does reveal something, it has to be treated very cautiously and submitted to the final authority of Scripture. Here's why. Number one, Scripture itself holds up Scripture as the ultimate authority. Scripture itself holds up Scripture as the ultimate authority. Here in Acts 17, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word that that Paul was speaking with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul is getting divine revelation. He's preaching it to the Thessalonians, right? Or to the Bereans, is it? To the Bereans. Uh, And what are they doing? They're saying, we'll see if this really is from God. And their ultimate authority is Scripture. Okay? So Scripture holds up Scripture as the ultimate authority. Second thing. All branches of Christendom, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, all branches of Christendom agree that the canon of Scripture was closed at the end of the apostolic age. Nothing more can be added to Scripture. Here in Jude, D 
Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Again, by the close of the apostolic era, uh, what had been taught could be considered to have already been entrusted to the saints. Okay? So nobody except cults argue uh, that, that Scripture should still be, be written. Okay? So anybody who comes along and says, Hey, I'm Joseph Smith. I've got this Book of Mormon. It's new divine revelation. Hey, I'm Muhammad. Here's, uh, here's the Koran. It's divine revelation. Hey, I'm in this little Pentecostal church and I wrote a new book. Uh, it's full of new divine revelation. No, it was already once for all delivered. It's closed, and it is the final authority. Now, here's the logic. If Scripture is our ultimate authority, if Scripture is closed, then even if God does speak today, it must be that must be submitted to and evaluated by the closed canon of Scripture. It's not that controversial, is it? Everything must be submitted to the final authority of Scripture. Now, this might help. Let me talk about three ministries of the Holy Spirit when it comes to communication. First of all, there's revelation. What's revelation? It is when the Holy Spirit gives word-for-word truth to somebody. Okay, The prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament received divine revelation. This is in a category all by itself. It is the infallible, uh, unchanging Word of God. Now, there are other subjective ministries of the Holy Spirit where he communicates with us. And that would fall into the category of illumination and guidance. What's illumination? Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit in unfolding the meaning of Scripture to you, both intellectually and experientially. Without the Holy Spirit, the Bible doesn't make any sense. You know, some of you go, I try to read it, it doesn't make any sense. One reason is you might not be saved. And you don't have the Holy Spirit. It's just a bunch of gibberish. The Holy Spirit of God comes in and lives inside of you, and it makes sense all of a sudden. But, here's the difference between revelation and illumination. Revelation is God giving the words themselves Illumination is the Holy Spirit working with us, and we're still sinners. We still are weak. We still have frail minds, and we can goof it up. There's a human element of error that can sneak in here with illumination. Same with guidance. I believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well. The Holy Spirit convicted me of something over vacation. Um, I believe the Holy Spirit leads. I believe He guides. I never would have left Wisconsin and packed up everything and tried to start a church without believing God wanted me to do that. 
the Holy Spirit leads, guides, directs. I would hope you, you're, you're following the leading of the Holy Spirit all the time. But there's a difference between being guided by the Holy Spirit and revelation. This is word for word, infallible. This, our emotions and our sinfulness can still get in the way. So these two, illumination and guidance, must be submitted to the ultimate authority of revelation. Now, speaking of guidance, let me just try to clear something up that that might answer a lot of questions that people have. Just simply a vocabulary issue. I have a sneaking suspicion that when most people say, well, God spoke to me, or God told me, What they really mean is not that God gave word-for-word audible revelation, but God made it very clear through leadings, prompting. Do you ever have this? You listen to a sermon on the radio and you're convicted. Then you turn on some music, same thing comes at you. You come to church here, Pastor Brian's talking about the same thing. You open your Bible. All right, I get the message, Lord. Okay, That's leading. That's guiding. But that's not revelation. I think a lot of people are a little bit sloppy. And God is leading. God is prompting. God is convicting. And they say, oh, God made it clear. He spoke to me. And what they really mean is he's guiding me. Can I encourage us to be a little more careful in our language? Unless God has given you word-for-word infallible revelation, let's not use the term God spoke to me. Let's use God prompted, God led. I think God may be moving in this direction. But let's be careful about saying, God spoke these words to me. Okay? Now, one last thing. If you are really saying, no, God gives me divine revelation, okay, you are now claiming to be a prophet who has word for word divine revelation. Revelation. What was the test in the Old Testament for those who claimed to be prophets? What was the standard? 100% accuracy. Deuteronomy 18. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, That same prophet shall die. Right there you should go, whoa, I better be really careful about claiming God spoke words to me. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word of the Lord uh, that the Lord has not spoken? How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. 
Here's the test. 100% accuracy in fulfillment. Okay. Um, one thing that MacArthur did say is that there's this movement of prophets who are claiming God spoke, and even they say that 75% of what claims to be prophecy is wrong. 75%? That would get you stoned in the Old Testament. Okay? So, here, four questions. If a person's claiming to be a prophet, here are four questions I have. One, have you written your prophecies down word for word? Well, no, I just kind of remember. If God is giving you new, fresh revelation, you better write it down word for word so you don't get it wrong. Are you writing it down? Two, have you let others examine these prophecies for accuracy? And may I say, before the fulfillment. In other words, did you write them down? Did you give them to people to hold you accountable so you can't finesse it afterwards? Do you have a 100% accuracy rate? Not a 99% accuracy rate, but a 100% accuracy rate. And are you willing to die if you're wrong? See, that's where I think practical cessationism is the only way to go. Are you saying God has never spoken? No, I didn't say that. You can't call me a cessationist. I'm very, very cautious, though. And I think we need to up the standard. And we need to be very careful that we don't manipulate to get our way. This happens like with Moody students. Well, I know we've gone on some dates, but God told me that you're not the one for me. God told you that? Oh, yeah. Now we're bringing God in and blaming it on him when you just don't like the guy. Right? Well, as a church, God told me we need to raise $4 million to start a movie company. Really? Yeah, $4 million, because I want to start a movie. God, well, God, I guess if God told you and you're a prophet, you better do it. Okay. Did, it, did, he, did he actually give you verbal? Well, no. Well, then don't say he, he spoke to you. Maybe he's leading, maybe he's guiding, and so forth. The best way to live is as a practical cessationist. Now, does that mean God doesn't move? No. God moves. He prompts. You know, a lot of people tell me during communion is when God convicts. God is clearly convicting of, you know, relational issues or sins that need to be repented of. I would hope that the Holy Spirit is active when I preach. Otherwise, this is just a waste of all of our time. Right? So let's not go to the other extreme and say the Holy Spirit's dead and God doesn't communicate in any way, shape, or form. No, He is very, very active. But practical cessationism is uh, the most, uh, I think, the most uh, godly way to evaluate. 
Okay? Now, one last thing. I think I said that twice, didn't I? Right. Here's a danger when you are in circles of people who are always getting divine revelation. God told me, God told me, God told me. Very often, the focus gets away from the cross to the newest, hottest thing that God is saying. About predicting the future or predicting prophecies and this and that. Um, Paul said this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If you are in a circle of people that's always getting divine, you know, fresh revelations, let me ask you this, how cross-centered are they? Because God and His apostles are all about bringing us back to the cross, bringing us back to what Christ did for us, bringing us back to the nature of God, the attributes of God, what he did for us on that cross, repenting of sin, drawing us to him, cleansing us through the cross. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your divine, infallible revelation in your word. And Lord, we believe that your Holy Spirit is alive and well in illuminating and guiding and directing and convicting. But I pray, Lord, we would never be presumptuous and make claims that are not true to get our way, to add authority to our, our own wants. But Lord, I pray that as we submit to your Spirit, we submit to your guiding and your prompting and your convicting that we would ultimately be people of your word. Always asking, what does the word of God say? And may we stick close to the cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.